I feel like I haven't talked to you in like 500 days, but I know I probably did like yesterday. I think we did talk yesterday. Yeah. No, we did. We FaceTimed yesterday. Yeah, I know. But if I don't FaceTime with you like three times a day, I feel like I don't even know you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> too much coffee okay well then let's do this because i want to get through this whole thing because i want you to hear this whole chaser i need I'm to very excited brain dump it it's fucking awful do you want to do the chaser first and then no i need to have some lols and then like and then i need to like go into a little depression hole for a little while about somebody who has nothing to do with me okay okay hi i'm tasha hey i'm gabe <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. We are on season two, episode four, Legend. Legacy. <laughs> is it Legacy? It is. Hold on. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. We are on season two, episode four, Legacy. <laughs> what? I just I just liked that. I just like that. You like just say it with such assertion and confidence, like legend. <laughs> Legacy. <laughs> All right, we're on season two, episode four, Legacy. Great job. Thanks. We open on a teenager. Yeah. This kid looks like the guys who called me a freak in high school. So like angrily, they like had a vein. You're like, that guy's going to murder somebody. Yeah. He's on the phone talking about football passes and teammates and whatever. So this is the morning. He's like getting ready for school. There's a little boy sitting at the table eating a bowl of cereal. And this professional looking mom is doing what all moms do when getting kids ready for school. She's like three inches from the four-year-old's face. And she's like, we're leaving in 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody can hear her when she's speaking. And she's just fucking seething. Also, this mom plays Diane Keaton's daughter in First Wives Club. Oh. She goes upstairs to get the daughter, Emily, and tries to wake her, but she won't wake up. She lifts her up and there's some kind of like crazy shit on the back of her neck. Yeah. She had this like huge injury on the back of her neck. This gave me full butt. So I tried to watch this episode. I had put my kids to bed and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a once over and do like my skeleton of notes, you know, and then I'll watch it again tomorrow. I got to her walking in the kids room and lifting her up. And I texted Gabe and I'm like, not going to fucking do it. Yeah. And I really took some deep breaths the next day before I watched it. But it was, a, it was a, as a mom anyway. But the first, but what I did get God, to when why I- Why are you doing this? <laughs> I don't fucking know, dude. Because <laughs> this is like, in my mind, I was like, well, don't flop her neck around. Like, <laughs> So her demeanor was a little bit more chill than I would have been, but still like kind of panicky. And yeah, and then she yells to the angry teen to like get up there and help her. So they're in the hospital. Benson and Stabler are walking and talking with the doctor. I just love how they intro it where the elevator doors open <laughs> and they all step off the elevator and this doctor is reading the little girl's file to Benson and Stabler and everyone else getting off the elevator because HIPAA doesn't exist in oh, the right, yeah. world. You know? Yeah. It's a busy New York hospital. Yeah. <laughs> so she has a subdermal hematoma from blunt force trauma and the pressure had been building up for hours, possibly days. A subdural hematoma is like pooled blood between the skull and the brain and it causes pressure. And it's usually from like a severe head injury. Yeah. The doctor 
did some tests and she also had a fracture in her femur that was healed for about six weeks. She had hairline fractures on her ribs and bruising to the arms and pelvic region. And their vaginal trauma indicated sexual abuse. Ooh. They did a rape kit. Big exhale from Stabler here. Mm-hmm. The victim Emily's mom's name is Jamie McKenna and the father is out of town on business. So I'm immediately like, okay, it's the dad, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like somebody really hurt her. Yeah. But then Stabler's like, who brought her in? And the doctor says, Jamie McKenna. And I know this isn't supposed to be funny, but then the camera pans over to Jamie, the mom, and the two boys sitting like six feet away from them. And the mm-hmm. teen is just like staring at the cops. The little boy breaks my heart with his sad little eyes and the mom is sniffling and crying. But they were like, where's the mom? They're having this whole conversation. And then they're like... And they're oh, she's right just there. like right next to him. Yes, <laughs> she's right there. She's like, I can hear you. I'm right here. <laughs> hey, hey. She's like, hey guys, I was on the elevator with you actually. <laughs> so then the doctor, he's like super busy and he's like, I, there, there's a huge car crash and he's like, if you need anything, beat me. And then Stabler's like, so much for the weekend. Mm. So Benson and Stabler are now talking to Jamie, the mom. She said that she had picked up Emily from her father's house and put her to bed. Emily seemed tired, but fine. Stabes is like, wait, I thought the dad was out of town. And Jamie's like, my husband is out of town. Her father is a part of my life. I just as soon forget. Mm -hmm. I'm not giving this woman's voice enough. My husband is out of town. Her father is a part of my life. I just as soon forget. Yes. There. Yes. Better. The chronically attituded teen boy is like, oh, are we almost done? How long is this going to (laughs) take? Like, bro, we're in the hospital. He's a fucking psycho. His sister is in the ICU. Also, his name is Justin because the mom's like, Justin. (laughs) And so Staves is like, uh, as long as it takes. Don't push Stabes, you fucking little puke. Yeah. So just then, a dude runs up demanding to see Emily. Yeah, he's like pissed too. Yeah. It's Emily's real dad. He's played by Yancey Arias. He was in mm. Live Free or Die Hard and like a million other things. Oh, I thought he looked familiar. Mm-hmm. Jamie's like, well, you stay away from her. <laughs> I can't do her voice. It's so bad. It was annoying. And like at the end when they were coming, like she was getting more and more babyish. Yes. Depending yeah. on the situation, which makes sense later, but she gets very, her talk gets like really babyish. Yeah. So Stabe steps in to find out who he is. His name is Denny Korea. Denny and Jamie keep like fighting around Stabler. And he's like, how could you let this happen? And Jamie's like, I left her alone with you. <laughs> Stabler calmly suggests that he and Denny go for a little walk. And Denny says one last thing. He leans in and goes, if you think I'll let him get away with this, I won't. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, he's talking about the husband. Mm-hmm. Stepdad sit down. Sorry. (laughs) Benson and Jamie continue talking, and Benson asks Jamie about Denny. Jamie says he's always had an anger problem, but it's gotten so much worse since she married Randall. I know Denny hates me, but why take it out on an innocent child? You're so good at her shitty voice. (laughs) It's so good. Here's me doing more overthinking, but in real life police work, this statement is what's called disassociating. She refers to her own clinging to life seven-year-old daughter as, quote, an innocent child like the little girl could be anybody's child right so I might be overthinking here but 
upon my first watch, I was like, this raises a little red flag for me. Yeah. Something seems fishy about that. Yeah, where you like separate yourself from them. Yeah. So cut to Denny telling Staves about the night before. He said, Emily watched The Lion King all afternoon. Did you know I can recite that movie word for word? I mean, I'm sure I can too, actually. Ah! I know Sylvania. Do you want to start? I know I can do Aladdin for sure. Yeah. And Little Mermaid. Any Disney movie from the 90s? Little Mermaid was like 89 or something or 87. Oh, was it? Not to split hairs or anything, but... (laughs) I'm just trying to think of like the last... Because I could do it with... I could do it with Pocahontas. Oh, yeah. I know. Among others, there's like a certain window of my childhood. And then I'm wondering which one was the last one that I could do that with. And I'm thinking it was The Lion King. Nobody wants to talk about how she was 16 when she got married. Who, Pocahontas? Little Mermaid. No, she was like 13. She was not. Oh, I was like, yeah, that is not. It came out in 89. What did Little Mermaid? Yeah. I want to be where the people are. Oh, see my God. See I don't know how many it. times I found myself at an after bar at some apartment with like four other people just like power balloting Disney songs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Denny's telling Staves about his night with his daughter. He said he cooked her dinner and then Jamie came to pick her up. He's all upset that he has to let her go there because he knows Randall touches Emily. And Staves is like, did your daughter tell you that? And he goes, she didn't have to. I saw the bruises. Mm. He reported it, but Jamie turned it around and said that it was Denny. And Stabler's confused, like, why would she do that? Denny says that Jamie doesn't care who she hurts as long as she gets what she wants. I believe him. Mm-hmm. Even if it means hurting her daughter. Yeah. So they're in the squad room. Stabler says it's your basic case of abuse. Classic he said, she said with a twist. So the doctors say that the abuse was long term, but the head injury was like 10, 24 hours prior to going to the hospital and that she was molested. The rape kit turned up a hair and a nylon bristle embedded in abrasions in her back side on her butt. But they're not sure what the nylon bristle is from yet, so the lab is still working on that. Yeah. So Emily seemed fine when her mom put her to bed, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't somebody in the house. So the bleeding was internal, so it could have been hours before the Simpsons showed. So it could have been at Denny's house, her dad, could have been, you know, anybody, like any of the kids at the house, her mom. So Denny Correa, the father, is a Cuban immigrant who did time in 93 for robbery and assault, and he's now a cook at Emily's school which is called the Greenbrier School. And then Randall McKenna, her stepdad, is 40-ish. She's an investment baker with a Wall Street firm. So both boys were home that night. The little guy has a learning disability and is nonverbal. The teen Justin couldn't add very much when they Mm. questioned him. He's 15. Toots wants to know how the society chick ended up with a fry cook. Benson says that it was in rehab. She was kicking an amphetamine habit and he was teaching a dance class. To me, that's very unprofessional. Oh, yeah. Of Denny. Right. He was teaching a dance class and like hooked up with a student that is in rehab. I immediately thought of that episode of Saved by the Bell when Jessie was taking caffeine pills so that she could be in the play and she was like, I'm so excited. And then Zach hugs her and he's like, oh, and she cries. She's like, I'm so scared. So I was like, ooh, this is a Saved by the Bell nod. Which one came first? Oh, Saved by the Bell did. Well, it's not a Saved by the Bell nod. What are you talking about? It is too. All of this. No, they were the same. They were. Law and Order (laughs) SVU, I'm going on record right now, is literally born of Saved by the Bell fan fiction. (laughs) No. That's what it is. No. It's just a friend hugging another friend, not like a (laughs) 
Jesse wasn't in rehab and getting taken advantage of in a vulnerable position by somebody in power. Okay, whatever. Obviously, they embellish it for drama. Of course, of course. Jamie's mom is Lois McKenna. Okay, this bitch. She's the chair of the Avery Huntington Foundation. Um, So she's like fucking like society fucking lady. Think of I have a boa around her neck. I don't know. Pearls. I don't know. So Lois tried to have Denny fired from the clinic when Jamie got pregnant. Because, yeah, that's not cool. Mm -hmm. Craig and sends back. Benson and Stabler to go do some background on the custody issue and then sends Toots and Munch off to the ACS, the Administration for Child Services, mm-hmm. to see if prior charges fit the MO. Okay. Right. The Huntingtons have a lot of money. Craig wants them to figure this shit out before he starts getting a bunch of fucking phone calls, basically. Yeah, they ha- they're high-powered, have a lot of connections. God, that's gotta yeah. be so annoying. Okay. What, to deal with rich people? Yeah, getting all these phone calls for favors and stuff, but like, you, like the average person getting arrested doesn't have any of that shit. It's fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. So Benson and Stabler are sitting with Jamie's mom, who clearly has a literal stick up her ass to hold up her body. Yes. And a butler is pouring her tea because of course he is. Benson says, so you're saying Denny raped Jamie? She goes, I'm saying she was vulnerable and he took advantage of that vulnerability. Benson's like, well, then why'd you support Denny in getting custody? Jamie was in no condition to care for a sick infant. I tried to convince her to abort. It's like a really slow and sad Moira. Oh my God, should I do it like a slow, sad Moira? Stabler asks her about Jamie's drug habit. You make her sound like a common junkie. They were prescription drugs. Diet pills. Yes. She said that her dad indulged her and then he died and she continued to indulge herself. She finally became so incorrigible I sent her to boarding school. Mm. And then I'm like, why is there a framed 8x10 of Bill Clinton on the end table? (laughs) Did you see that? It's not even like a photo of someone shaking his hand. It's just like his like president portrait. You know that she doesn't like fucking Clinton. She's not a Democrat. Yeah. Like no. what's he doing there? Yeah. She's Bush all the way. Oh yeah. She's huge Bush. <laughs> Okay, so Jamie was 11 when she got sent away. Jamie got herself straightened out with the birth of Emily. Mm -hmm. And Randall completely supports her in suing for custody. So mom says that's why the day after she filed, Denny broke three bones in his face and threatened to kill him. Randall told Denny he wouldn't press charges if Denny agreed to give up custody. Mm -hmm. And he has until Friday to sign the papers. And then she was like, I hope he refuses so Randall would press charges. Yeah, she's trash. She's trash. David. <laughs> so Munch and Toots are at the ACS. First of all, I fucking love this lady. And I'm not sure where I recognize her from. I know. I know. I wrote Tasha. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. So the caseworker at the ACS is the badass bunkmate of Red in the early seasons of Orange is the New Black, Miss Claudette. <gasps> oh. Remember that fucking hard ass who kept her side of the cell super tidy and everybody's scared of her? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the ACS's first contact with Emily was in April of 94. She was a baby and very sick and Jamie was struggling like with her addiction and custody was given to Denny, mm-hmm. even though he had a record. And they're like, why would you do that? And they're like, just because they have a record doesn't mean they can't be parents. And then about a year ago, Jamie started to challenge the ruling and that was when the abuse charges started to surface. But there wasn't sufficient evidence that they found. And Toots is like, broken bones ain't sufficient enough. And she was like, well, normal childhood mishaps. And Munch says, what would you call this latest mishap? And she like pauses for a really long time and she's like, we followed procedure. And then Munch says, and that lets you sleep at night? And she scoffs and she says, I haven't had a good night's sleep in 10 years. I legit 
legit feel bad for a lot of social workers. Mm-hmm. They're like fucking overloaded with cases. Shit falls through the cracks because of that. And then the community right. is affected. Yeah. So Munch and Toots at the Greenbrier School, they're talking to the principal, I think. They don't really make it clear who she is, but I'm pretty sure. I know. I said I'm assuming she's the principal. Yeah. But she strikes me as a woman who should have her own PBS children's show with like a puppet as a sidekick. <laughs> yeah. And it's like a little right. bit creepy, mm-hmm. you know, like she's a little bit like that. So she's saying that Denny works three shifts in the kitchen and still makes time to come to Emily's story time, which is really sweet. Oh my God, I like how we thought she was the principal. And now as soon as we described her, I'm like, no, duh. She's obviously a first grade teacher. Okay, keep going. She's her teacher. Oh. She's gotta be. Okay. All right, keep going. So I guess he like tells the kids like great stories about his childhood in Cuba. So by law, she's required to report any injuries, even if they seem like they're just accidents. So Emily had told her that she broke her leg falling off a bike that her dad had just bought her. She doesn't think that her father is abusing her or is responsible for like any of her bruises or breaks. Yeah, but she goes in the six years that she's known him, she's never heard him raise his voice to Emily. I'm like, and I'm like yeah, why, why has this you? lady known him since Emily was a year old? Are the writers not doing the math or am I the only one? Am I overthinking it? Maybe because of the Greenbrier school, they did daycare and all that. I have no idea. Yeah, maybe. The only other adult that has prolonged contact with her is Henry. I can't remember. Ibidin? Abaddon. Abaddon. Yeah, he's minister for protocol for the Brunei mis- mission, and he's mm-hmm. taken a very special interest in Emily, and I don't like that. Yeah. Toots' face is like, no. She may as well have dropped a banner behind her head that said, he's molesting her with like balloons and confetti right. and shit coming yeah. down. I know, we're like, oh, he's a priest? Okay. He took a special interest in her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She's like, what's wrong with that? So this fucking guy like reads to her, takes her to dance class and the theater, but then there's... A little girl named Jennifer who's glued to Emily's side and they're like BFFs, like sisters. Yeah. And Toots was like, Emily's probably not into telling her teachers this shit if there is shit to tell. So we need to talk to Jennifer. So Munch and Toots go to talk to her. Gabe, if you don't like Munch after this scene, I'm leaving you for him. I know. (laughs) Jennifer is this adorable little girl in like a little blue sweater and a little blue hair clip and it matches and she laughs at Munch's name because it is weird. (laughs) She's like, (laughs) Munch. (laughs) Munch is like weirdly good with this little kid. And it was like really endearing. Oh, it was so cute. Jennifer said that Henry is really nice to Emily and made everybody laugh with his songs. Jennifer said that Emily told her that her and her dad were going to be going on a trip to Cuba and leaving the mom behind. It was a secret trip. He's going to kidnap her to go to Cuba because yeah. he doesn't want to give up custody of his daughter and also doesn't want like to go to jail. Right. And then the girl's like, I have a Barbie with hair that grows. You want to see it? And Munch is like, maybe later. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he's like, off. he just like pie face her to the ground. And he's like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, bitch. We got what we wanted. <laughs> nah, bitch. He's like, we have to go help Emily now. Mm-hmm. But so Finn says he's going to go check the airlines because flights have manifestos. Mm-hmm. Wait, no. Ted Kaczynski has a manifesto. Uh, flights have manifests. Manifests. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm, yep, manifestos. Yep. <laughs> so they're in the squad room. Benson and Stabler walk in and Stabler says that Denny is looking like a hothead. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Toots tells him that they did some research and there are two one-way tickets to Cuba for Denny and Emily departing from Quebec. 
on Friday. So this this is the same day that Denny's supposed to either accept charges from Randall for punching him in the face or sign his kid away. And so Stabe suggests that they bring him in. Now Munch and Stabler are in a room with Denny and he's explaining his side. He tried to talk to Randall to reason with him to leave Emily alone, but it got physical and he beat his ass. Mm-hmm. Stabes is like, oh, like the store clerk you beat up a few years ago? And Denny's like, dude, he was going to shoot me. And Munch is like, um, you were robbing him. And Denny's like, I was hungry and defected. I had nothing. Like, yeah. he came to this country. Here you go. Goodbye. And he's like, I'm fucking starving. Like, you know, yeah. the detectives don't care about his sad story. And Denny's like, you're twisting everything. And Munch mm-hmm. goes, just like you twisted Emily's little leg <gasps> until it broke. And I'm like, fuck, I cannot with the broken bone shit after Kimber's thing. Yeah. Ugh. Munch is cold blooded here with that comment. But Denny doesn't flinch. He's like, oh, hell no. I would never hurt my daughter. Yeah. And they keep pushing to try and get him to crack and Cragen pops in. He's like, hey, can I talk to you guys? And they're like, Jesus fucking Christ. They come out into the squad room and Munch is like, what the hell, Captain? He was about to pop. <laughs> Sometimes Munch gets really New york and I like it. Oh my God. Episode four, season one, me would hate me because mm-hmm. I adore Munch right now. <laughs> so it turns out that the labs came back and it's not Denny. Like, why are they hard pressing him when they know that the DNA is coming back? Doesn't matter. Blood type doesn't match the hair sample. They got to get rid of him. Mm -hmm. So Cragen's got Skoda in his office to go over the profile with the team. He says the molestation and abuse is being perpetrated by someone who's been able to shade perceptions and navigate a complex multifamily social dynamic. He suggests the abuse is rage-based as opposed to sexual stemming from abuse in the abuser's history. Mm -hmm. This person also has low self-esteem. He goes on to say that it's like two sides of the same coin. The forces that drive him to do such awful things on the flip side can drive him to excel in other areas. Mm. Maybe he's the head of a Fortune 500 company. And I'm like, are we talking about the stepdad now or what? I feel like it's a little on the nose. Well, it could be that Henry Abedin guy too. And I, oh, true. For a second there, I was like, oh my God, what if it's that like nonverbal little boy? And he's like super pissed about something. I know you said that to me and I was like, what? When you were like, I think it's the little brother that I was starting to watch. And I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't think it is. I don't think it is, Gabe. I think I was just hoping for like a really fucked up twist. Well, Some sh- M. Night Shyamalan stuff. I think... Shunaman. So Randall McKenna actually didn't fly out that night, but instead his plane left at 7 a.m. the next morning. Mm -hmm. So they got to talk to him. They also need to talk to Henry Abaddon at the Brunei mission. Mm -hmm. Break. They all head off into the directions they need to go. They have to be really careful because of diplomatic bullshit because the guy's a minister. Henry Abaddon, yeah. Benson Stabler at the office of Randall McKenna. Um, He's kind of in a rush because he has a meeting at like 30 Rock in a half hour. He's got a really nice shiner, too. You're welcome, said Denny. Yeah. He kind of, like, apologized for rushing, but he's like, it's been a weird couple weeks. And he has, like, yeah, his face is fucked up. So he met Jamie through Jamie's mother, Lois, actually. She was a client of his, and she set them up, Mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Mm. You can see the energy in the room shift. And this is where all three of them pull their proverbial dicks out. (laughs) So Olivia pushes the relationship with his stepdaughter. Randall pushes back like, what the fuck are you implying? And then Stabler smacks his hog on the table and tells him (laughs) Denny told them Randall's been molesting her. Yeah. He plays the insulted fancy guy. Like, how dare you? Yeah. But they don't back down. Olivia's like, you had access. She slept in the next bedroom. 
Blood analysis excludes Denny. So let's get your sample. And he's like, uh, no. So they're going to have to go through his lawyer and court order it, which they're like, all right, fine. You're just giving us fucking one more thing to do. And he's like, yeah. And he left for his meeting. <laughs> he said it just like that, too. <laughs> yeah. He's like, fine. Fine. And just like runs out of there like <laughs> teenager. <laughs> Mom. <laughs> so now Munch and Toots are at the mission of Brunei talking to Henry Ebedin. So he's the guy that took a liking to Emily and took her to see the Lion King and shit. I was like, this guy is wearing a gray suit. I try to give everybody like a description. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting here racking my brain to come up with some likeness for him. And all I can come up with is he's in a gray suit. Yeah. I mean, he obviously eats dry toast. He's in like a mm -hmm. fancier house. He seems like calm and like cultured or something. Yeah, he really likes period piece dramas. <laughs> yeah. And missionary doesn't. sex. He doesn't get to have sex, does he? I don't know. I don't know what his position is. <laughs> it's missionary. Yeah. <laughs> So Toots introduces himself, Odafin Tutuola. Apparently, Tutuola means the gentle one, but you wouldn't have thought that after that crazy starfish tackle he did last episode. <laughs> Henry Abaddon has history with Lois Huntington. He didn't expect Emily to be like such a delight, he said. He's like, normally I fucking hate seven-year-old little girls, but <laughs> yeah. she was great. I was wound up for her to walk through the door. <laughs> but then I was like, ah, she's cute. So I don't like grown men taking an interest in young children. And I know mm -hmm. that maybe is biased or whatever, but I don't care. It's not biased. It's aware. And I just don't. Sorry for guys that are great with kids. I know a handful of dudes that are super great with kids. And although I, every one of them I know is a great, great dude, I still would never defend you if someone accused you of hurting yeah. a kid. I wouldn't. I'm sorry. I wouldn't. I would just be if the, if the kid was like, yeah, he's super great and super nice and like takes me to soccer practice. But then this. Yeah. I'd be like. Like, yep, I got I don't you. care what my perception is of that person. 100% always. What if it's a woman, though? Would and you a be like, kid mm, says that? I don't know if I believe you. Oh, no, no, no. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, we believe the victim. It just rarely comes up. So they ask him about taking Emily to the matinee of the Lion King and then bringing her home to her father. And they're like, can anybody corroborate your whereabouts? So Emily's grandma Lois came with them to the show. Well, yeah. and his driver drove them there and back. Or so Lois comes on field trips often, but Emily's father, Denny, doesn't know about it. Yeah. So he's not spending a bunch of alone time with this kid. Mm -hmm. He's usually with her and her grandma. Yeah. So he understands that it's Munch and Toots job to be suspicious and he will do anything it takes to punish whoever hurt Emily. So he's like, yeah, fucking take my DNA, do whatever you need to do. Yeah. Which, okay, we're like, he's great. responding in the way that her stepdad should have fucking responded. Yeah. So then I'm like, okay, he's just one of those like super nice people. Cool. Yeah. Well, but still I'm like, still mm. side eye. Yeah. Benson and Stabler find Justin, the sassy teen brother outside of his private school, like in the quad or some shit. Yeah. He is such a little fucking cock. I know. I just can't. Fuck teenagers. I can't stand anyone between the ages of seven and 25. I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's true. Dude, I keep on this like website, dating website, they keep sending me fucking like 19 year olds and I'm like, what? I know. I'm like, why? I don't waste my time teaching somebody <laughs> where the clitoris is. I was going to say, I don't want to teach a guy how to like a blowjob. I just don't. Like, no, I don't want to do this. Oh, God, sounds I'm... exhausting. And like, like, what I are we going to talk have... about? Way back when I was in high school two years ago. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Can I drink every time you bring up your mom? Because I'm going to get shit faced. <laughs> I'm your new mom. <laughs> 
So they have a few more questions for him. He didn't know when his dad got home Sunday night or when he left on Monday morning. And the only thing he heard was Randall and Jamie fighting about Emily. But he's a cock the whole time. And they're really patient with him, even though I can see Stabler kind of like, you know. Yeah. But they both know, like, we need to stay chill when we talk to this little fucking hothead. Yeah. They're in the squad room. Ugh. I started calling Craig and Craigie. <laughs> Craigie. I'm Crabby like, Craigie. It's too familiar. <laughs> I don't think I don't think he would like it. But mm-hmm. they're in the squad room, and Craigie wants an update. <laughs> Henry Abaddon. <laughs> Henry Abaddon waived his diplomatic status and is giving a blood sample. Randall McKenna is fighting it. Cabot's meeting with Judge Petrovsky in the morning about the court order. Emily's still in a coma, and they all disperse and leave the camera to pan to Munch, who's at his desk, but a million miles away. Mm-hmm. Seems extra disturbed. So Munch is in the hospital, and but dude, as a grown man, if you can go into a small child's room who's in a coma alone without having to talk to anyone, like, I'll be pissed. And then he does. He's just there. I <laughs> thought the same exact thing, and yeah. then I just, like, did this whole side process, because I was like, ooh, I should make a note of that. Like, he just walked into her room, and then I was like, well, actually, he probably went to the registration desk and then asked for her room number, and then he had to show his badge, like, and she directed him, and she's probably right around the corner and can actually see him going to her. There's a whole thing. He brings her a stuff line and just leaves. It can't only be episode four and me cracking on Munch. Cabot and Randall's lawyer are in the chamber of Judge Leon Petrovsky. So Cabot's like, dude, SVU thinks that Emily's head trauma is part of a pattern of abuse that's been going on. Mm -hmm. And the lab excludes her biological father and Mr. Abaddon, leaving Randall McKenna with access to Emily. And opportunity. And opportunity, yeah. And Randall's lawyer is like, there's no evidence. Cabot's so fucking cool, dude. I know. She's like, we can provide a detail detailed analysis of the whereabouts 24 hours prior to her admission into the hospital and Randall has a clear window of access they need that fucking DNA then fucking Randall's lawyer says he was at home with his family and Cabot's like "Uh, yeah that's my point yeah and then of course the judge is like yeah he needs to give DNA by 10 a.m. tomorrow yeah she's like I hereby declare she does she says like a weird declaration where it's like you know it's just you three in a room like you're not even wearing the robe (laughs) like it's like in the office when he's like I declare bankruptcy (laughs) The gavel. Didn't have one. Enough. Oh, no, that's that's RuPaul. Silence. (laughs) Bring back my girls. (laughs) We're rooting for Joey J. Yeah. To win Drag Race. Do you guys go to high school together? No, uh, we went to college together. I say college. We went to community college together. And Mm -hmm. also I know his mom. My husband knows her very well. She's a fucking peach. Like she's the mom I want to be. But anyway, yeah, we're rooting for Joey J. Sorry. Bring back my girl. (laughs) Uh, They're in the squad room. Uh, Craig wants Benson to follow Randall McKenna. If he's one minute late to getting his DNA, Craig like, I want him fucking arrested for contempt. Phone rings. Stabler grabs it. And Randall McKenna is in critical condition at Mercy General. Blunt force trauma. Someone beat the hell out of him. Gee, I wonder who. Off to Denny's. <laughs> Not to smoke and drink coffee at 2 a.m. Denny, the dad's apartment. <laughs> yeah. I want the moons over my hammy now. <laughs> also, did you beat this guy's ass? So Munch and Toots are heading up to Denny's apartment with the landlord, Mrs. Fergus. She and Munch are scream talking at each other. <laughs> I know. It was so weird. And she's like, I haven't seen Denny since yesterday. He's usually working or looking after that sweet little girl of his. And Munch is like, do you know where he is? She's like, huh? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, even though he's like standing like a foot from her face. <laughs> They're both <laughs> screaming. And then she's like, you don't have to yell. Anyway, she said Denny was worried about Emily because his daughter's mom married a bad man. So they're in Denny's apartment now and Munch picks up a copy of Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go, which I love that book. Mm-hmm. And Munch gets a call from Benson. Apparently, they had picked up Denny at the hospital trying to sneak in and see Emily. Mm -hmm. Toots finds a bloody shirt. In Emily's wardrobe. Denny had obviously been there. And it was like a men's white t-shirt. It looked like somebody had had blood all over their hands and like wiped it on the sides, like the front sides of their shirt. So Benson and Stabler are questioning Denny in the interrogation room. Denny says he didn't mean to hurt Randall. Friday was the day he was supposed to sign papers to give Emily to Randall and Jamie, but he couldn't sign his daughter away to a man that was molesting her. So he went to um, Randall's office to try to figure something out, but he stopped by the guard in the lobby, so he waited in his car. Randall didn't come out until around midnight, and then when Randall saw Denny, he starts screaming, was like, I'm gonna fucking file harassment charges, and Denny's like, don't, please don't, you know, because with his record, he could be deported, Mm -hmm. and like, Randall laughed at him. Next thing Denny knew, he was beating the shit out of Randall. Denny called 911 because Randall was fucked up. He fucked Randall up. Changed his clothes at home. He wanted to see his daughter before he turned himself in. Benson's like, you did a fucking real number on Denny. And then he said, no worse than what he did to my baby. Yeah, Denny's not sorry and I don't blame him. Yeah. Oh, so then they're in Kragen's office and Kragen's like, nah, he should have had the system work for him and which we all know isn't fucking necessarily true. Right. By the book, Kragen doesn't like that Denny street justice this guy, but the voice of reason munch this episode is like, well, the system hasn't really served him so far. Mm -hmm. What if it was your kid? And I'm like, no shit. Yeah. Benson hangs up the phone with the lab. The nylon bristle that was found on Emily is from a brush Mm -hmm. and it's not Randall's DNA. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. It's in the bloodline. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, this makes more sense to me. Angry See, teen, this, but too simple. I like what? doubled down on the little kid. I was like, it's that fucking little kid. <laughs> I could kind of see why, not really, because that child was just like four and doughy. But mm. the angry teen was like too simple to me. Yeah. Because I'm like, he's playing too angry for me to believe it would be him in the end. So they're at the McKenna residence. Detectives are looking for the brush. Munches in Emily's room and finds a hospital ID bracelet. Mm-hmm. He looks up and sees the little brother who's, remember, nonverbal. And yeah. this fucking kid, dude, he has the saddest little eyes that I've ever seen. I mean, this kid's acting skills are amazing. Okay, so I thought it was him, so I was like, what a fucking creep just standing there looking at him. (laughs) Oh, I saw him and I was like, oh, this kid, he can't express how much he's hurting, but he can show it in his face. Like, Mm -hmm. this kid's incredible. So Munch shares a moment of eye contact with him and you can see Munch hurting too. So Staves is digging in a dresser and he sees this hairbrush on top and picks it up. And this is my fucking favorite. All of a sudden it zooms out and you can see Justin in the mirror on the dresser. And he's got his hands on his hips like a Superman pose (laughs) behind Staves. And in the most robotic after school special acting tone, he goes, hey, what the hell are you doing? That's mine. (laughs) And I'm like, there is no way they did more than one take, first of all, because this cannot be the best of several takes. (laughs) Munch and Stabes are questioning Justin now in an interrogation room. He calls Jamie the bitch. Mm -hmm. And he 
hates her. He says all Emily does is cry and he wishes they would just leave and he and his dad could be left alone. Yeah, he was like, everything was great until Jamie and Emily showed up. Cut to Jamie with Benson. She said that she left with Michael, the little brother, to go to the drugstore and get his asthma meds. They were gone Mm -hmm. around an hour because there was this huge line. The husband was at the office and she peeked in at Emily when she got home and said Emily looked like she was asleep. She's like, how can I be so blind? I'm like, you're overdoing it, bitch. (laughs) Why is this story about the drugstore just coming up now? Yeah. Other side of the glass, Stabler, Cragen, and Munch. They think maybe Randall didn't want to give up a sample because he was protecting Justin now. Mm -hmm. And they're going to throw Justin in a cell to see if it'll break him a little and make him talk. Yeah. Because if she did go to the drugstore, it was just Justin and Emily alone in the apartment. Mm -hmm. So then Stabler is escorting a handcuffed Justin out through the squad room and past his stepmother. She's in the squad room talking to Olivia and is offering more help. But Olivia's like, oh, we've got it covered. You know, go home with your sad little boy. And Jamie says goodnight and leaves. Mm -hmm. Munch makes a note that she seems, quote, almost disappointed. And Benson's like, her husband may never walk. Her daughter's in a coma. Her stepson's going to jail. And her ex-boyfriend is facing deportation. She's not disappointed, Munch. She's numb. And Munch Mm -hmm. is not down with that. Okay. Toots is like, hey, buddy. What's happening in that old noggin of yours? <laughs> Munch is like, if the abuse symptoms have been showing up for months, why no hospital records? Then yeah. he pulls out the hospital bracelet he found in Emily's room. Mm-hmm. It's labeled Erica Smith. Nobody at Emily's school or dance class knows anyone named Erica Smith. Munch is detectiving all of this on his own. Where does he find the time? Am I selling him too hard? <laughs> yeah, calm down. <laughs> He's got Toots on board now, and they're going to go get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. So Toots and Munch are at the Hudson Free Clinic talking to a nurse who scans the medical bracelet. Obviously, it says Erica Smith, and she came in complaining of vaginal bleeding, but it was from the day before Emily's school filed its abuse report. Mm-hmm. She was given antibacterial ointment and sent home, and ACS was notified as per protocol. But they never heard anything back from the mom or the agency ever again. She gives them the home address. It's one of those magical toots and munch moments. Toots is like, if this is the right address, it's in the middle of the East River. You thinking what I'm thinking? And he looks at his partner and Munch is like, we've been had. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, boom. And they're like, boom. And they leave. Yeah. So they're in the squad room. Munch and Toots had found out that there were four different hospitals with four different aliases Jamie's mom used for Emily. All paid in cash. No paper trail. What the fuck is going on? Is she covering for Randall or Justin? And then Munch says that it could be Jamie. Yeah. And the injuries maybe aren't even sexual. And I'm like, yeah, they are. But okay. It doesn't have to be like sexually motivated to be sexual abuse. He's like, it could just be done to throw us off. And Craigan's over on the desk on one butt cheek hiked up on the... hiked up on his desk like a cool teacher in the 90s. He's letting it mull over. Yeah, he's like, the tactic Jamie could be using is if she abuses the kid and blames the dad, the dad goes to jail and she wins custody by default. Mm -hmm. And then Olivia's like, well, what the fuck happens if Emily dies then? And then SCOTUS, (laughs) he like turtlenecks in and he's like, bonus. The kid is nothing more than a means to the end. The end being attention, sympathy, or love. Yeah. And then Skoda's like, I bet you fucking Jamie was abused. And she's like yeah. repeating the pattern. But it's like, wh- why have the aliases then? He's like, to control the outcome. Right. Denny was excluded right away from the rape kit, leaving Jamie without a scapegoat until Justin showed up. Not until Justin right. showed up, but until, sh- and then she was like, I'm going to switch to Justin. Yeah. Skoda finishes it up by saying, you know, she's wrapping herself up in a warm cloth of victimhood. Mm-hmm. Benson and Stabler are off to talk to the angriest, most hormonal teenager 
I can't with this kid. So they can't ask him any questions without him fucking cocking off to them. Yeah. Just like these short little like teen answers. It's funny because yeah. Stabler's like, I've had enough. And he like gets all dad on him. And he's like, get over here. Makes him like sit down. That was the best. Yeah. And I knew it was fucking coming. I didn't think it would be as calm as it was, though. He stayed pretty calm about it. He talks to him like he's a four-year-old. He's like, very clearly, we are trying to get you out of here. And you keep talking in circles. Yeah. Okay. So they're asking him about that night and how long Jamie was gone and like, when she went to the pharmacy, Justin said that Jamie was only gone for a few minutes and Stabler's like, well, she said she was gone for an hour. And Justin's like, I don't know, maybe she was. And that's when Stabler, who has been calm and cool this whole time, putting up with this fucking teenage bullshit, is nearly putting hairline fractures in his teeth from clenching them. Mm -hmm. He says to Justin, listen, we're trying to help you get out of here. Mm -hmm. Now tell us what you know so we can do that. And Justin keeps his attitude, which I appreciate as an acting choice, but he's like, okay, I'll help you. He says that Jamie left and he was bored. So he took off and went for a run and he like went down to the baseball diamond and back, whatever. Thought it was probably about an hour. When he got back, Jamie was already home and chewed him out for leaving Emily alone. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what fucking difference does it make? She was asleep. Like, it doesn't matter. So he doesn't know how long Jamie was home for. Mm -hmm. And I 100% believe Justin, even though he's a fucking little prick. Yeah. So they're in the squad room. Munch is like, if Justin is telling the truth, Jamie could have hurt Emily. She would have more than enough time. Craigan wants them to re-talk to the doorman and ask him some more questions. But I don't remember them ever talking to the doorman. They didn't show talking oh. to the doorman. Yeah. They're like, maybe you just didn't ask the right, the, the certain questions because stuff had changed since then. Yeah. And here Craigan says that they need to get corroborating testimony to go with Justin's story because otherwise it's just more finger pointing. Do they have, do they talk to a doorman in every SVU episode? I don't know. I'm like, it's, it's gotta be. It's like always minimum, the same guy. <laughs> minimum 80% of the time. I want to make a binder of doormen. <laughs> I got a whole binder full of doormen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> Timely. <laughs> yeah. So Benson and Stabler are outside of the McKenna apartments. The doorman, he says he remembers seeing Jamie and Michael that night. Michael was breathing kind of heavy because of his asthma, but they were only going like down a block. Can I interrupt here? What? Is this the thing where he offers to get them a cab and she's like, no, we're a block away. Makes her like asthma kid like walk 10 minutes. That is fucked up. Another thing I noticed about when they talk to a doorman is that it's always when he's on duty at his post mm-hmm. and they don't talk to every employed person like that. Like not one doorman has come into the precinct to date and I've got my eye out for it. They're always talking to the doorman in a little suit. This one in particular is unloading the back of a vehicle like somebody just got back from six months out of the country because there's like a hundred fucking bags for some reason. Right. Yeah. (laughs) He's unloading for their entire conversation. (laughs) So he saw Justin leave right after Jamie left, but he didn't see Jamie come back because he might have been in the fucking bathroom. Who knows? He said she could have walked in while I was taking a powder. What the yeah. fuck does that mean? <laughs> you never heard that before? No. Is that a term? Yeah. Like like going to the powder room. I mean, bathroom. I, I understood what it meant, but I have never heard it as a term. Huh, weird. You've, you have, you have yes. heard. Yes. Somebody going, I'm, I gotta go take a powder. Yeah. I haven't like heard it in a long time, but I've heard it. Yeah. That is so bizarre. It is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So Finn and Munch split up to cover more ground. But while they did that, they had found out that Jamie was in and out of the pharmacy in like five minutes. Mm. She got there nine minutes after it closed. So there wasn't a fucking long line, like she said. She raised hell and they let her in. Mm-hmm. It's only like a five, ten minute walk. So she had a lot of time to hurt Jamie because fucking Justin was gone running for like an hour. It was yeah, Justin so- the whole time that was gone for an hour. Right. So they did all the time math and Stabler's like, all right, so she got Time math. Time math. 
death. What? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so Jamie and Michael got back at like 9.30. Then the doorman confirmed that Justin got back around 10. Yeah. So that leaves Jamie home alone with Emily for at least a half an hour. Right. Yeah. All right. So the whole fucking team, including Cabot, are in Cragen's office. Yeah. They set up some bleachers. <laughs> I was going to say it's the size of a school gym. <laughs> Cabot's telling them they can't put her in the apartment definitively, so she needs more. The hospital fraud isn't technically considered fraud if Jamie paid the bill. And you can't prove it was her who took Emily to the hospital. Even if you could, it's a stretch to decipher. Yeah. Because it's all just really shaky. Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing is just really shaky. Right. So once again, Munches on top of shit, and he starts going down a different path of what Skoda had said. Mm. Jamie does shit for attention and sympathy. She has Munch's pager number that he gave to her in case she needed someone to talk to, and she has been blowing up his pager. He thinks she's jonesing for a sympathy fix, so they decide to give it to her. They're like, "What should we do?" And he's like, "Feed the junkie." I'm like, "Oh, Munch, you sly fox! <laughs> I need you to do this because I need. Don't just give me the facts. I need you to pepper it." with Richard Belzer praise. No. Okay. This is such an amazing acting moment by Richard Belzer. So they're in the, the precinct room. Munch comes in with a, two cups of coffee, one's for Jamie. He's like setting things up to be like this like real heart-to-heart friendship time. Everybody else is on the other side of the glass, basically with their noses pressed against the window. <laughs> yeah. She says she just wants to help in any way she can. Do the voice. Oh, yeah. It just keeps getting worse. I just want to help in any way I can. And she's like wrapped in a fucking cardigan holding her coffee like, oh, it's cold here. What can I do? I just came right down. Help. I hate her. I know. So Munch is like, oh, it must be so hard to be an outcast in your own family. You have no idea. I think that I do. And like he hands her her own file that she thought was sealed. Where did you get this? <laughs> He's like, this is so perfect, Tasha. <laughs> he said he had a friend in children's services and they remembered Jamie. <gasps> <laughs> the person that gave him the file was like remembered the her superiors being super nervous investigating an ambassador for sexually abusing his 11 year old daughter oh Jamie and Munch is like that must have been so awful for you and Jamie's like um yeah <laughs> no she was actually like really but she's it was I don't want to mock her in that because she was like she was abused by her dad Munch tells her that it must have been really hard for her and asked how her mother Lois took it and Jamie said her mom was, was very jealous of her because her dad couldn't stand to touch her. Her dad couldn't stand to touch her mom. Touch her mom, yeah. So she sent Jamie away to boarding school. And so Munch is like, oh, your mother abandoned her. And he's like really leaning into like making her feel like she's a victim, which she is. But he's bringing it home. Yeah, they're trying to figure out what happened with Emily. He continues to sympathize to feed yeah. this sick thing that she has. Yeah. To manipulate her to the place that he wants her to be, which is confessing to him. Yeah, so Munch mentions that it must be hard to have the same rejection from her own daughter and Jamie's like really confused. She's like, what? <laughs> Munch tells her that Emily came out of her coma a few hours ago obviously lying. I know. I was like, he is bluffing. Yeah. Yeah, and told them everything. But they need to get some details straightened out before Jamie can see her. He goes, well, you know, the hairbrush. It was Justin's. Yeah. And he's like, well, we have the, you know, a partial print and the testimony. And she's like, 
Emily's a liar. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, bitch. Yeah. Munch is like fucking hard setting her up to tell them everything. Mm-hmm. Her father poisoned Emily against me. Yeah. It's been very painful and hurtful. <laughs> yeah. Munch comforts her and tells her she's been she's been carrying this pain long enough. And just he's like, just tell me your side of the story. And Jamie just starts fucking chatting away. So he gets to this point with her and she's she hesitates and then she'll be like, okay, I think I can kind of trust you because he stays really compassionate. Like, oh, because she's like, Emily's a liar. And he's like, why would she lie? Yeah. You know, he's like, like, this hey. has been so hard for you. Like oh, still making her the victim. he's got his hand on her shoulder and he's like, yeah. what could you do, you know? He's like yeah. still keeping her the victim, but like getting her to, you know. Right. I know it's been so hard for you, but we just need to hear mm. your side of the story. So you can start to heal. Yeah. So what happened was Jamie and Emily were driving home from Denny's and she wouldn't stop crying. So she pulled over to talk to her. And then Emily had said that her and her dad were leaving forever. She says that she pulled Emily out of the car and she hit her head on the curb. She fell and hit her head. And Munch is like, come on. And she's like, I didn't shove her that hard. So she like shoved her daughter and she hit her head on the fucking curb. Mm -hmm. And and then she was like, it was the first time she was quiet all day. So Emily was sleepy, of course. And Mm -hmm. she went to bed and Jamie and Michael went to the drugstore. When they came back, Emily was crying again. So she spanked her with a hairbrush because her mom spanked her with a hairbrush and that's how you teach discipline in her mind. But Emily just got louder and louder. What was I supposed to do? Munch is like, the only thing you could do. And that's when Jamie told him the whole thing. So she threw her against the wall and she stopped crying. Mm -hmm. And she fucking tucked her into bed. Night, I love you. She's like, I just wanted her to stop crying. Is that too much to ask? Munch straight up fucking stands up and leaves the room. (laughs) He just like walks out. He was like sympathizing and connecting with her the entire time Mm. even though you knew that he hated everything she was saying. He had to get this information. Yeah. Munch was fucking like "All right, I got it and he's done Mm. and just like deadpan walks out the door. Didn't say a fucking word. Cragen's like good work Munch. Doesn't even just blows right past Cragen. Everybody's like Fuck. Yeah. Munch has got a blank look on his face and he's just like, fuck this. Obviously, the amazing fucking Olivia Benson is going to go and find him and talk to him. Also, she's a lady cop, so he needs to talk about his feelings. So she has to go do it. Yeah. Put all that emotional labor on yourself there, honey. <laughs> they're all like looking at each other down in the squad room and they're like, Benson, are you going to? She's like, fuck. Yeah, I guess I'll I mean, I guess I'll do obviously. it. Obviously. I mean, you guys could get fucking Skoda, but whatever. It's cool. <laughs> Benson follows Munch up to the rooftop to talk to him about his feelings. Mm-hmm. She said... That bluffing thing about Emily being awake was a real risk. She goes, I don't know what we would have done if Jamie had pressed to see Emily. Munch is just pissed. And he's like, Jamie didn't care about the kids. And he knew something was fucked when he and Toots searched the apartment and he saw Michael. He had that sad, lost look in his eyes. And it gave Munch this flashback to when he himself was growing up on the Lower East Side. There was this little girl, Michael's age, that lived across the street. She had the same sad, lost look as he did. Mm. And Munch used to see her every day after school when he was coming home and he said it seemed like she was waiting for him and he gets choked up here. He says he didn't pay much attention because he was quote, too full of his own teenage crap to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes she'd, she'd be on the porch looking at him and she'd have a black eye or a bloody lip. Mm-hmm. And she'd never said anything to him, but it, it always looked like she was trying to tell him something. And then one day she was just gone and it turns out her mother had thrown her through a plate glass window and he saw her dad at the funeral. Oh, when Munch said, he was so emotional here but he goes, 
it was the first time I saw a grown man cry. Yeah. And not to like, I don't want to like give too much credence to manly men don't cry and whatever because that's all old shit. But yeah. like, I remember the first time I saw a grown man cry and it was heartbreaking and it was my dad. It's <laughs> jarring because yeah. it's at that time we were told that that's extremely rare and that men don't do that unless they're extremely hurt, you know? Yeah. And now it's like, oh my God, I wish we would teach our fucking kids that crying is fine. Jesus Christ. I know. Anyway, so the mom ended up getting sent to a sanitarium, but before she did, she told Munch's mom that she didn't understand what all the commotion was about because she was the one that had to get a new window. Mm. Munch is like hard sniffling, dude, and then takes off. He can barely hold back his tears. His acting was really good. Mm-hmm. I was like, Darkwing Duck. I said, if Gabe doesn't give Munch some room for this, she's a monster. Do you hear me, Gabe? <laughs> You're a monster. <laughs> No, I got, I got some space in my heart for that, yeah. And he says, I continued to see her standing on that porch mm-hmm. and it just haunted him. Yeah. And he sniffs and he goes, I almost let her down again. And he walks away and I'm like, wow, 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 wow. Yeah. And then the final scene, Munch is in Emily's hospital room. He sits down and starts reading. I'm, I have goosebumps all over my entire body. Yeah. He sits down and starts reading from Oh, the Places You'll Go, the Dr. Seuss book that he found in her room. And I got choked up. It was beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it was heartbreaking. Oh, man. That was a good episode. It was good, but I hated it too. Yeah. Mainly because I know what this chaser is going to entail and I fucking hate it. Nobody should listen to it. <laughs> really excited for this chaser. Also, like, ugh. Dude, yeah, you're going to get bummed. You're going to get angry. And our friendship is going to be over. <laughs> this is our last episode, guys. This is the last Last time we're speaking. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here we go. I think it's fairly obvious that we're going to be talking about Munchausen by proxy for today's chaser. Yeah. With the huge media attention that Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard received, the illness is much more in the foreground than it ever has been before. You know, like everybody knows what Munchausen by proxy is now. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I feel like the first time I heard about it was when I was young and I watched The Sixth Sense. Remember? Uh-huh. Oh, And the little, like, yes. barf girl, like, broke into its tent. And the mom was, like, making her eat soup. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, what? Yeah. So I'm going to go into, like, a tiny bit of background on what Munchausen by proxy is, and then we're going to move forward with it. Okay. Factitious disorder imposed on another or Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a condition in which a caregiver creates the appearance of health problems in another person, typically their child. This may include injuring the child or altering test samples. They then present the person as being sick or injured. The behavior occurs without a specific benefit to the caregiver and permanent injury or death of the child may occur as a result of the disorder. So just like in the episode, they say that the primary motive is to receive attention, sympathy, and manipulate doctors. And things such as donation and gifts are also often a big part of the experience. And I think more so with social media and like reality television and people being in the spotlight. Spotlight. Yeah. Among like regular people. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to diagnose because firstly, it goes against what we're conditioned to believe about mothers in general. And it is most often mothers. They're not 100% sure why, but moms are most oftentimes the primary caregiver. So exposure and opportunity alone is weighed super heavily there. Mm -hmm. So these caregivers, they always present really caring, very concerned, very involved. That's another thing that it's like, okay, a caring, concerned, involved mom with a sick kid, it'd be super fucked to go after that person or it feels like it socially, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Another trait of those with Munchausen by proxy is that they have extensive medical knowledge, which serves a few purposes. It feeds that feeling of having one over on the doctors because they can keep up Mm -hmm. and or they also have a desire to prove the doctor is wrong so knowing more can get them there. Mm -hmm. A lot of times doctors 
doctors will be baffled by what's going on with this kid who doesn't seem to present to have any issues. And the mom can swoop in and be like, well, I can tell you what's going on. It can also make them successful in manipulating doctors and get them to perform procedures that they otherwise never would. So it takes a lot of awful things happening for someone to be diagnosed with Munchausen by proxy because oftentimes they see multiple, multiple doctors. They move around to different states and keep the kid isolated. Right. One of the biggest tests to find out if someone has Munchausen by proxy is to isolate the child from the parent and see if they get better. In these cases, they always do. Yeah. So Mark Feldman of the University of Alabama told CBS New York, these mothers tend to be psychopathic. They don't experience guilt and they lack empathy. So with Mommy Dead and Dearest on HBO and all of the coverage that Gypsy Rose Blanchard has had, I decided to tell another story having to do with Munchausen by proxy. Mm. This is the story of Lacey Spears, but more so the story of her son, Garnett. Mm. Okay. Turn this off right now. Okay. So Lacey Spears grew up in Decatur, Alabama, and she had some bizarre behaviors as a young teen. It's often found that those diagnosed with Munchausen by proxy tend to start out with just like straight Munchausen's or display Mm -hmm. dramatic attention-seeking behaviors. Mm -hmm. So when she didn't have someone by proxy to get her attention, she did things to get attention on herself. Mm -hmm. She lived with a friend's family for a while. So her friend that she was staying with started to get weirded out because shortly into her stay, Lacey began calling her friend's mom mom. Mm -hmm. And this happened with more than one friend where she like spent a little bit of time with them and then just started referring to their mother as mom. Mm -hmm. So this is just a side note because there are so many rabbit holes that I could go down with Lacey Spears. At some point, Lacey was going to nursing school but never completed it. But that is another trait. Mm, The medical stuff. Yeah. Yes, the medical stuff. But it didn't fit into everything that I was doing. But I'm like, it's worth noting. Mm -hmm. So Lacey always had loved kids. She wanted to have her own. She worked with kids. Mm. Again, there are multiple women in her past who she had gotten very close to, always single moms, always needing help with their very young kids. And she was the godsend who wanted to just help them and love their kids and take care of their kids. I mean, she never took money for any of it. She would just spend time with their children. I mean, it would be like extended periods of time. Mm -hmm. You know, she would watch them every day for months while the mom was at work or take them every weekend when the mom just really needed help. And she was always there to like go above and beyond to take their children. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I don't like that, but okay. Every one of these kids, shortly after spending time with her, had started to experience severe ear infections and perforated eardrums, like, constantly. What the fuck? Oh my god, I don't even want to know. Tell me. They didn't have them when they weren't in her care, but nobody was putting that together. So she would have to take them into, um, like, urgent care and shit and get them looked at. One young mom who Lacey worked with at a burger joint, Autumn Hunt, didn't make the connection until the police came to interview her when Lacey was being investigated. Mm. Her son had so many ear infections and issues, they suddenly stopped when Lacey stopped taking care of him. And Autumn just never, she just thought he was, you know, an 18-month-old with a lot of ear infections. It's very common. But then when he was two, Lacey moved. And Autumn, I just was kind of like, I guess I just assumed that they had cleared up. He's like, yeah, he just grew out of that stuff or something. Yeah. Autumn also recalls finding out that Lacey was posting photos of her son, who Lacey called her son John John, Mm -hmm. Jonathan. She was posting photos of 
Autumn's son on social media and claiming he was her son. Okay. And Autumn didn't really have a lot of choices. When she confronted Lacey about it, Lacey was just like, I just love and adore him so much. You know, let me continue to watch him and whatever. And she just kept doing it. Mm -hmm. Like she would see people in person and say it was her son and whatever. Okay, so she's 20. She's still watching John John like all the time. She's 20 and a mutual friend introduces her to Blake Robinson. Blake's a young cop and they hung out a couple of times, but he didn't really pursue anything with her. So after that, she started hooking up with this dude, her neighbor, Chris Hill. Shortly into that whole situation, she told Chris that she was pregnant and the baby was his and that they should get married. He already had a five-year-old and he thought that, you know, he and Lacey could make it work as a family with both kids. But not long after that, Lacey did a 180. She told Chris that the baby wasn't actually his and it was Blake's and they weren't going to get married. She still lived a couple doors down from Chris. So he saw this kid, like he didn't interact with them because she was always like, stay away from us. They went from like picking out baby names and talking about marriage to her being like, if you come near me, I'm calling the police. Okay. And he was kind of like, okay. There's also a decent amount of people who were told that the baby was a product of her being raped by her father. So you see this pattern of attention seeking and so many of her stories have these inconsistencies. Right. So on December 3rd, 2008, Lacey gave birth to Garnett. No dad was put on the birth certificate. At five days old, Lacey had Garnett back at the hospital. He was bleeding from his nose. He had severe ear infections. And she said that he had, quote, failure to thrive and wouldn't eat. Failure to thrive is basically just a catch-all term for young, young kids and babies that just don't eat. They just won't eat, so they can't put on weight. And mm-hmm. What do you mean they just don't eat? Like It's, it's just, a, again, it's a catch-all term to like just it it could be for like a myriad of reasons they just don't how do you get them to eat there are a lot of things that they try to do the absolute last resort is a feeding tube okay right so over the next year after this initial visit over the next year he would be hospitalized 23 times once for five weeks Garnett would go on to continue hospital stays and visits as doctors tried to figure out what was wrong. His symptoms included severe ear infections, high fevers, seizures, and digestive problems, all seemingly with no answers. Hmm. He ended up having a feeding tube implanted before he was a year old. Hmm. He also had a procedure done to prevent him from vomiting. I I listened to this like medical description of what this is, but it's a very last resort, usually takes multiple opinions to get this done, especially in such a young baby. I don't know how they got this to happen, but they basically close up the, like there's a sphincter muscle at the bottom of your esophagus that goes into your stomach. And so he couldn't puke or- What happens to that shit then? What do you mean? If you have to bark, what happens to it? You just poop it out? I don't know, What's dude. The, what the fuck is that? That's fu- I've never heard of that. That's fucked up. It, it is. So he would be fed through a tube from then on. What year was this? 2009. Okay. Okay. Lacey moved them to Florida and they lived with her grandmother for a while until she found the fellowship, quote unquote. Oh my God. It's in New York. <sighs> then uh, there's nothing, nothing... Nothing to see here. They moved to New York in November of 2012 to go live with the fellowship. It was a commune type place with a focus on farm to table living. And Lacey had said that she thought it might help Garnett with his digestive problems. Was it a, a Christian thing? Not anything that I read. It okay. seemed very like, I mean, their big focus was like farm to table eating. Okay. So through all of this time, Lacey had been documenting Garnett's journey and their life on social media. Um, She had a fucking blog. She was always like, I, I love and adore. 
adore him. He's the best at anybody who knew her or knew uh, she did. She wasn't ever close to anybody, but anybody that knew her surface level was just like, she's an amazing mom. She lives for her son. Mm -hmm. So all of this time, Lacey had been documenting Garnett's journey and their life on social media. In one post after Garnett had yet again been admitted to the hospital, she reported that Garnett's father, Blake, they called him Daddy Blake, a decorated police officer, had died in a terrible car accident. Mm. People were heartbroken for her and her chronically ill son. Friday, January 17th, 2014, Lacey took five-year-old Garnett to Nyack Hospital reporting that he had had a seizure. He was admitted for tests and observation. On Sunday, January 19th, Garnett was doing great, like bouncing around the room great. He was going to be released until all of a sudden he'd had a seizure. His sodium levels, which should be between 135 to 145 mil equivalents per liter, were up into the 180s, which is insane. A doctor told Spears that Garnett had the highest sodium level he had ever seen. and He was suspicious and mad, witnesses said. And he looked at her and said, it is mad. Metabolically impossible. Something isn't right. Oh, for her, his body to do that on its own. He, it's not possible. Yeah, he's this like, doctor said. Bitch spiked his. Something's wrong here. Something's wrong, and I don't. And I'm not about it. Trust you. Yeah. Doctors stabilized Garnett, and he was airlifted by helicopter from Yak Hospital to Maria Ferrari Children's Hospital, where on January 22nd he was declared brain dead. What? What? He died on January uh, 23rd. Tasha. He died. Wait. What? No, okay. I wasn't expecting... What? Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh my God, I hope they fucking... Because I was just like, oh good, they separated her, him from his mom. He'll probably get better now. Oh God. Okay, I'm... I'm... my All... Every single hair I have on my body, all of them are fucking angry. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Okay, go ahead. So that was on January 22nd. He died on January 23rd. All of it, social media documented by Lacey. In an article from Psychology Today, Herbert Schreier of Children's Hospital Oakland said of Munchausen by proxy in general, not about Lacey specifically, but just in general talking about it, quote, the purpose is not to kill the child, but to keep her sick so that the mother can be in a relationship with the doctor who would recognize her devotion, knowledge, and sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So I remember Lacey Spears' case. I didn't until I started like reading about it a little bit. And I'm like, oh, I fucking remember this. It was huge news. And I remember feeling so bad for this mom. Like, oh my God, she lost her son. And now like she's being looked at for this? Mm -hmm. Like, how is this even possible? Then pieces started to kind of come together. A neighbor told the Journal News that Lacey Spears secretly called her from the hospital early Wednesday, January 22nd, and asked her to get rid of one of Garnett's feeding bags. The neighbor did it, but later handed it over to authorities. It was tested and was found to have insane concentrations of sodium in it. Cops found salt, like regular table salt, sitting among all of Garnett's feeding things at their home. There's more. There is video from the hospital room Room. One of the machines is apparently equipped with a camera to aid in observation. Mm-hmm. And when the cops found this out, they're like, we need to watch that fucking video. Yeah. And then the the cop that was talking about it was like, watching that video is something that will haunt me for the rest of my life. You're watching a five-year-old die as his mom watches. Oh my God. Um, in the video, you see Garnett hopping around on his bed. Lacey takes him to the restroom, which is off camera, and she brings him back out. And you can see that like she kind of walks in front of view of the camera mm-hmm. and you can see that she's there's like something tucked under the side of her sweater. Okay. And within a few moments, Garnett's body language changes. He's retching, but remember he can't vomit because of that procedure and he's burying his head in the sheets 
until eventually he stops moving. Everyone runs in and Lacey watches and cries while they try to resuscitate him. I made the mistake of watching the video. Wait, they were already at the hospital? This happened at the hospital. They had come in and been like, oh, we're going to release you. He's doing really great. You know, he's going to go. And then she had taken him into the bathroom and put salt in his feeding tube like she had been doing. That's how she kept him sick is the high levels of sodium. Cops really dove into investigating this bitch. Threads of her stories were just loose end after loose end. Oh, the dead dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Blake Robinson is still alive and is still a cop. What? When he was, when yes, when he was contacted, he was like, I hung out with this chick like twice. I'm super Baptist. And the reason we stopped hanging out is because she kept pressuring me to have sex with her. And I was like, I don't believe in that like until marriage. And she's like, all right, never mind. But she had this like obsession with authority with like police and stuff. Yeah. So she created a story around him. Okay. And he's like, nope, I'm alive and I don't have fucking anything to do with this shit. And I wouldn't even call her a friend. Like I barely ever knew her. Wait, so it was her neighbor's kid? Yes. Paternal test showed that Garnett was in fact Chris Hill's baby. He reached out to Lacey on Facebook just to be able to make contact and see photos of his son that he never got to know. Yeah. April 4th, 2014, Garnett's death is ruled a homicide. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took a minute because these cops were doing like insane investigating. And this is when they went back and talked to August Hunt, John John's mom. Oh, yeah. I didn't mention that. So there's all these photos of John John with Garnett when Garnett was a baby. And they were all captioned like brotherly love. Mm. But then after a while, she started telling people her other kid died. Like so a bunch of people thought that she had lost Garnett's dad and that she had a baby who died died. It was just a a mountain of sad stories, you know. Mm. On March 2nd, 2015, a jury found Spears guilty of murdering her son by poisoning him with table salt, which she administered to him from infancy through his feeding tube. On April 8th, 2015, a judge sentenced Spears to 20 years to life in prison for the death of her son. That's it? Really? Yeah. 20 years is the minimum. 20 years to life. Okay. And she did try to appeal in 2017 and they dunked on her and were like, <laughs> no, fuck off. <laughs> so she's she's still in prison. And because of this, I know the world is fucked and God is dead and we're alone. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram. <laughs> That's fucked. Yeah. Shit. People are fucking this crazy. This show isn't funny. This isn't funny. No. Anyway, so yeah, as someone with mental illness, I always want to give someone else with mental illness, even if I can't relate to it, the benefit of the doubt. And not even the benefit of the doubt. I just want, I want to give them like a lot of grace because they're sick. Right. Your mental mental illness is like your own. You're not Mm -hmm. hurting your kids. You're not like, it's my precious. It's for me and nobody else. (laughs) Yeah. You're just like, God damn it, kids. Can I just have one thing that's my own? (laughs) (laughs) It's like um, pedophilia and Munchausen's by proxy. Or the two sicknesses where it's like. You can fucking kill yourself would be like the number one thing. Yeah. Am I supposed to have room like empathy for that? Am I supposed to have room in my heart for those people? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. And that's why God is dead and we're alone. Like, that's why I say that. Like, none of that can fucking exist if this woman, if a if a, a beautiful, precious, like, by all accounts, beyond, like, all of the testing that was done post-mortem, Garnett was a healthy, healthy Yeah. I'm going to have to, like, deep dive into this. Oof. Don't watch that video, dude. Um, okay. You're going to. Mm, I don't know. 
because I leave all that stuff, the pictures and videos and stuff to me, because that stuff doesn't affect me in the same way it affects you. I didn't know that that's what was that's what I was watching. Oh, okay. Like it was playing while I was hearing this guy's interview. Okay, I'll leave the ghost videos up for for you to do. Yeah, I'll, well, it depends. I will review the Disney movies. <laughs> A whole new world. Do you trust me? Wait, do you trust me? <laughs> Don't you dare close your eyes. That's how we should end this because then um, we'll feel good. I need six eggs. It's too expensive. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, follow us on all socials at SVU pod. Email us at SVU pod at gmail.com. Check out the hashtag little bit loud to see small pods coming together. And if you are a small pod, throw some hashtag little bit loud on your shit. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. Anything else? Uh, No, I think that's it. Ooh, next episode. Ooh, what is it? Shit. Take a look. (laughs) I thought I was I was like, oh, I'm going to throw in another Disney song. But then I just started saying the Reading Rainbow theme song. <laughs> <laughs> the Reading Rainbow. Okay, where is it? Episode five, right? SV. The boys. You. Law and Oh, order. I can't just type in season two, episode five, and my internet knows what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my fucking God. <laughs> Baby killer. Fuck! Here we go. In a story ripped from the headlines, a seven-year-old boy shoots his six-year-old classmate. Aside from grappling with the political and emotional fallout of the event, the SVU detectives must also track down how the little boy got the gun in the first place. Hmm. Fuck me, dude. Yeah, this is different, though. It's it's a kid-on-kid situation. It's not like... Whoa! No, I mean, it's not like... I guess it's not, like, evil, but, like... Why, wait, why is SVU... We've all got our own opinions about fucking guns, Why is dude? SVU covering it, though? Because children are special victims. Oh, I thought it was all just, like, sex stuff. No, that's why... We talked about that in that, um... I don't think we did. In that season one wrap-up thing about how... It's literally, <laughs> getting... like, audio archived. You can go to our podcast yeah, I don't and know. listen to it, Kate. Doesn't sound like something I'd say. <laughs> I said it. Oh, Jesus. I just, oh, did you hear, just hear me a hard giggle? I was like, <laughs> 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 well, it sounded like the nanny. Uh, Mr. Sheffield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this All has right. been fun. Oh, and on a high note. Bye. Bye. Love you, babe. <laughs> love you, bye. Please have you don't. answered the phone during sex? Because I've done, yeah. I've like ordered shit on Amazon during sex. Like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Craig and. What's okay. Got Stop it. it. I know that last part was on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> this actually isn't going to come out till like the end of January. So. Okay. Um, oh, I've been going like. Uh, whatever. Uh,